Amen. Thanks. You may be seated. My name is Nathan. Welcome to Emmaus Church. Really glad you're here. Raise your hand if you like a Bible. I'm going to be preaching out of the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel. It's on page 675 after some maps between the Old Testament and the New Testament. New Testament begins with the Gospel of Matthew. Raise your hand if you like a copy of the, of the Bible. Also, there's sermon notes pages. There's big pages for kids if that would be helpful if you want to draw along. Uh, you can choose that option instead of the, the other. Also, if you do grab this one here, make sure you check out the back. There's some good stuff happening in the next couple weeks that we have um, reminded you about here. And then also on the bottom of this notes page is an opportunity to write down your name and your address, your, key, your uh, email address. If you'd like to hand that off today, you're welcome to do so. We'll collect it later. This is just a way for us to be able to stay connected with you. And if this is the first time that you are here or the first time in a while or you're relatively new, there's some um, roasted coffee beans out in the cafe area. We'd love to send you home with a bag of those as a gift. Um, Merry Christmas. Thanks for joining us today. All right. Well, Matthew is best known as a writer. Uh, in fact, the little book that he wrote is still in print and it's still talked about all of the time today. Uh, Matthew was a Jewish man, and when he dropped out of school, he went to work for the government. And normally that would be no big deal, except that the job that Matthew got working for the government was uh, significant because of the government. He went to work for the most powerful, pervasive, massive government in the history of the world at that time. It was called the Roman Empire. And Matthew's job was to, to collect taxes for the Roman Empire. Um, and what made it especially challenging was that he would collect taxes from his own people. And the reason that was challenging was because his people, the Jewish people, were being oppressed by the Roman Empire. And so his job was to go and collect taxes imposed by the very government that was pressing down and, and, and holding back his people. Because of this kind of work, he was hated by his people. He was detested by his people. He was seen as a traitor. His profession put him in the company of the most notorious of sinners, there's nobody worse than a tax collector in a Jewish, from a Jewish perspective at that time. So one day, Matthew's at work, he's collecting taxes at his table, and this Jewish rabbi comes up to talk to him at his table, which is pretty interesting because of Matthew's notorious reputation as a sinner. And then something even more remarkable happens, that rabbi invites Matthew to be one of his students, to follow him, to be his disciple. And then a third thing happens that's super remarkable, and that is that Matthew says yes. And right then and there, according to the story, he gets up, leaves his table, leaves the money on the table, and for the rest of his life, he is an apprentice to his rabbi. And then before Matthew dies, he writes a little book for his own people about his rabbi. It's full of cultural, uh, cultural cues. It's full of quotes from ancient Jewish prophets. It addresses some of the uniquely Jewish concerns about God. Essentially, Matthew's book tells the story of the life and teachings of his rabbi, and his name is Jesus. Matthew believes, and he demonstrates in his book, that Jesus is the long-expected Jewish Messiah. He is the one that the Jewish people have looked for for generations to come into the world and to rescue it. And so right out of the gate, in this first chapter of Matthew's gospel, he tells the story of Jesus' birth. I want to read that together uh, with you this morning. He starts off with a short genealogy, 
because that's what you do at Christmas. You get together and you learn about your family's history, apparently. This is the new thing. And, uh, and apparently it's not a new thing, it's an old thing. And then he jumps into the story of the birth of Jesus. This is Matthew chapter 1, starting with verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, which is a very polite way of referring to being intimate, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. In this culture, you were married when you got engaged, from our perspective. Okay. These are betrothed individuals. It's probably a, uh, what do you call it, an arranged marriage. So even though they have not been married yet, they're considered committed. So he's going to need to divorce her because it's obvious she's pregnant. Um, she is showing is a way of she was found to be pregnant. She's showing. Verse 20, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, and now he quotes Isaiah, who wrote several hundred years earlier, Isaiah seven fourteen: the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which we sang in all three of those songs, didn't we? Which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage. Some translations say he had no union with her. Literally, the Greek says he did not know her, which is a Jewish idiom for sexual intercourse, until... She gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. All right, so this is the story of the birth of Jesus. This is Matthew's record of this story. His account is one of the primary sources that we have for what we understand to be the birth of Jesus, how this came about. Matthew's writings are significant in shaping Christianity's perspective on this man named Jesus. Matthew doesn't seem too focused on the how question, on the details part of how things are going on, because more important to him than the how did this happen question is the why did it happen question, the meaning of what happened. Okay, so for the sermon this morning, I want to first point to a key detail that Matthew emphasizes in his story, and then I want to explain just three reasons why this detail matters, why this is so important. In other words, we're going to look at what Christians believe about the birth of Jesus, and then we'll consider the significance of it. We need to hear the story, but more than hearing the story, we need to understand why this matters in order for this to make a difference, right? So each of the four Gospels has their own uniqueness. Each version of the larger story has their own emphasis the four Gospels, there are four accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of them 
harmonize with the other, but they have their own um, emphasis, their own perspective. So there's four different stories, but they all come with their own perspective. Mark's gospel doesn't even include the birth account of Jesus. John's gospel um, tells the story of Jesus, and he begins at the beginning of time, which I'm going to talk about Tuesday night. Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel give accounts of Jesus' birth and specifically of Mary's conception and the, the birth. So both Luke and Matthew's gospels are clear on the fact that Mary's conception, the way she becomes pregnant, is not ordinary. It's not the typical way. In Luke's gospel, we hear Mary receive this news herself and ask the question, how will this be since I am a virgin? Let's just start there. And then in Matthew's account, we hear the fact that Mary is a virgin. It's made almost excessively clear. Did you notice that? Did anyone else feel like that? Because he's referring to it constantly through this story. He just keeps coming back to this detail. In verse 18, uh, he writes that Mary's pregnancy was obvious before she and Joseph came together. The public assumption would have been that there was another man involved, another father, which is why Joseph decides he's going to divorce this young woman before it actually gets official. Matthew says it twice in his own words in verse 18 and in the words of the angel in verse 20 that this new life generated inside Mary is not the result of any human father, but of the Holy Spirit. And then Matthew, writing for a Jewish audience, supports the significance of this detail by quoting a massively respected Jewish prophet named Isaiah, who wrote, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. So, this is the concept. Luke records it. Matthew emphasizes it. He mentions it three times in just a few sentences, and it's got a label. The label is the virgin birth. That's, what, uh, that's how this is referred to, the virgin birth. This is more than a miraculous conception like those that we read about um, in, in other parts in the Bible, Hannah has a miraculous conception. Sarah has a miraculous conception. In the New Testament, Elizabeth has a miraculous conception. But by that, we mean these are older women who are considered to be barren. But then through union with their husbands, they are given a child. And maybe something like, maybe some of you were told at some point in your life, you're not going to have kids. It's just not going to happen. But you did. And then there's this sense of wonder around the birth of this child because you almost, you, you didn't think it, was, it wasn't expected. You didn't think it was possible. And this is truly a wonderful thing. But Mary's situation is not that. It's different than that. There's no infertility situation in Mary's story, right? She hasn't been praying for years for a baby. Um, there is no relationship. Nothing happens with a man. Matthew simply records that what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So Mary is a human, so the baby inside of her has a human nature, right? But the nature of Mary's baby is also divine. And what Matthew is declaring is that this is God in the womb, okay? God in the womb. How does that work? Well, Matthew doesn't give us a lot of details. He doesn't focus on the how. Luke is a doctor, so in his gospel, we'll get a few more details about how this happens. But Matthew just states the reality of the virgin birth, and then he focuses on the why. Why does this matter? Let me explain three reasons why this matters. The assertion that the baby in Mary's womb is the son of God, it matters because God is revealing himself to us. 
He is revealing himself to humanity. We could personalize it, I think, by saying God is revealing God's self to us. The fundamental message of the whole Bible is that God wants to be in a relationship with humanity. And the, and the birth of Jesus is the climax of this message, of this movement, of this effort. You almost get the sense in the Old Testament that it's not working, that the, the message isn't getting through successfully. Once sin enters the world through humanity's rebellion against God, humanity has a really rough time being in relationship with God. We have a hard time hearing God. We have a hard time faithfully following God. There's constant ebbs and flows through the flood, through the exodus, through the judges, the kings, the prophets. There's some good seasons in there, but mostly people have a hard time hearing God. They have a hard time knowing God. They have a hard time faithfully embracing a relationship with God. There's a writer in the New Testament who who writes this little book called Hebrews. And the very first chapter of that book begins like this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's Hebrews 1. The point is clear. God wants to be in relationship with humanity, and so God comes to humanity to be one of us. God is not sending, he's been sending messages He's been sending messengers. He's been providing. He's been correcting. It's just not getting through. So it's like he's going to go to earth himself. God is going to fully enter the human experience. It's like God says, you've been having trouble seeing me, so here I am in the flesh. Can you see me now? Can you hear me now? I've been sending prophets for generations. It's not getting through. So I'm just going to come in the flesh, and I'm going to speak your language. Can you hear me now? Can you see me now? Mary's baby is more than a miraculous conception. This is God in the womb. This is divinity taking on flesh. Why is that important? Because God is trying to reveal himself to us. Why does the virgin birth matter? It is the climax of God's effort to have a real relationship with you and with me. The message of Mary being pregnant, not just with another prophet, but with the Son of God, is that God is revealing God's self to his creation, to us. And there's more. Second reason for Mary's virgin birth, and the reason it's communicated in this way, is revealed in the name that God chooses for this baby. In a dream, the angel speaks to Joseph, Mary's fiancé, considered to be her husband, saying, Joseph, son of David, is David Joseph's dad? Do you know? He's not. He's his great, 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 28 generations ago back grandfather. He was the greatest king in the history of Israel. So here's this dream, which is weird in and of itself, but not so weird for a Jewish, from a Jewish point of view. Joseph, son of the greatest king that has ever lived, what's going on there? Like, pay attention. Remember who you are. It's an echo of this massively important ancestry. It's kind of like, gird up your loins. Here comes a message. Man up. Right, ready? Because here it comes, Joseph, son of David. 
Don't be afraid to take Mary home and to be your wife. Because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus. Why Jesus? Because he will, it says it right here, because he will save his people from their sins. Your Bible probably has a footnote that refers you to the bottom. It says that Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. Jesus literally means God saves. The second reason for the virgin birth is that God is saving us. In other words, it's more than God just wants a relationship with you. It's actually a little bit more desperate than that. You need to be rescued by God. I need to be saved by God. Okay? Yes, God wants a real relationship with you and me, but in order to have that, something's got to be done by this thing that, about this thing that's been keeping us apart for so long, namely our sin, our self-centeredness, our, our self-I'm-going-to-serve-me-ness. This is the lie that we've believed for so long that it's become a genetic trait that I know better than God. This is the lie that Adam and Eve believe, right? And this is the lie that we continue to believe. I know better than God when it comes to my money. I know better than God when it comes to my sexual practices. I know better than God. I'll just do it my way. The message of the virgin birth is that God wants to rescue humanity from sin. And in order to do that, God becomes fully human as a little boy named Jesus. And Jesus, as he grows up, does not fall into the same trap as every other human has ever fallen into. He doesn't fall into rebellion against God the Father. He doesn't get perverted and twisted by sin. He lives a perfectly righteous life in order that ultimately he can become the righteous, sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world on the cross. Now, there's a ton of truth in that statement, right? And it's because it's not just a statement, it's a whole doctrine that I just stated. It's a whole doctrine, the doctrine of salvation, how a sin-affected and sin-guilty man like me can be embraced by a holy God into a real relationship. Essentially, somehow, I got to get my sin dealt with so that I can be in a relationship with a holy God. I've sinned against God. And that's a big deal. It's not a parking ticket, right? There are consequences for this kind of thing. Paul says the consequences or the wages of sin against God is death. That's the way it's established. I can't work this off. I can't pay this back. No, somebody needs to die. The way it's established is that innocent blood needs to be shed. And I'm a human, so in order to take my place, I need more than just an innocent lamb, an animal. Ultimately, I need a human to take my place. And it's not just I who have sinned. You've sinned too. So the whole human race has sinned. We've been deeply affected by sin and the brokenness of the world. So in order to not just take the place of one man, one person, but to accomplish salvation for the whole world, Jesus needs not only to be human, but Jesus needs, needs to be God as well. According to what has been revealed in the Bible about the nature of God and the nature of humanity, we need a Savior who is human like us, but is also God. In other words, only God can rescue humanity. But in order for God to do that, he needs to become human. Friends, we, we actually need a God-man. That's what we need. We need a God-man. Someone who is completely God and completely man. We need the Son of God born of a woman. That's exactly what we need. 
Matthew begins his gospel by saying, and this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. There's a lot of beautiful truth, a lot of really powerful truth contained in the two natures of Jesus. But it comes down to this, God is saving us. Why does the Christmas story emphasize the assertion that Mary is pregnant with Jesus before she is married to Joseph? The message here is remarkably meaningful. First, because God is revealing himself to us. And second, in order to save us. And then there's one more big reason. In fact, I think it's the ultimate reason. It's even bigger than the act of salvation itself. The ultimate reason, like the purpose, the big picture for the virgin birth, the big why behind the Christmas story is articulated by Isaiah's prophecy, which Matthew quotes. I'll say it again. The virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's going to be named Jesus because his work will be to save us. But the bigger picture, the ultimate effect, the ultimate accomplishment will be the reunification of creator to creation. Right? The ultimate work will be the reunification of God and humanity, of me and God and you and God. We have not risen, so to speak, to God. We have not successfully attained that. And so God will descend to us. He will come to us. He will be with us. And he will then therefore be called Emmanuel. He is the God who is with us. He is the God who is with us. And this is like, this is um, earth moving. This is paradigm shifting reality. It's become common language for us. I'm not sure if you even noticed that we sang that truth in all three of the songs that we started with. God with us. This is a game changer. I recently heard a study about the dramatic increase of suicide in American youth. And the the fact that struck me deeply was the report that more kids are feeling alone. Desperate loneliness was the phrase. Friends, how deeply tragic that the true gospel narrative has not more effectively impacted the youth of our nation. We've been soaking in this truth since the inception of this country. At least ostensibly ostensibly we have been, right? Supposedly we have known this as sort of the backdrop of our culture. And how critical is it then that we who believe this to be the word of God declare this specific truth in word and in deed. You are not alone. You are not alone. The creator of the world so loves the world and you that he has come into the world to be with us. Who is God? God is the loving one who is with you. He is with us. Why is Matthew leaning so hard into this virgin dynamic of the birth story? Because he wants the reader to know that this baby is God with us. Don't get confused. This is not just another good person. I'm grateful for good people, but there's a limit to how helpful they can be to me. I need something a little bit more potent than that. I need God with me, okay? That's why he keeps talking about the fact that this woman is a virgin. And we're like, well, that's so weird. It's meaningful, 
okay? It's meaningful. Who is Jesus whose birth we remember at Christmas? He is God with us. He is God with us. All right, I'll close with this. I, I didn't expect to preach on the virgin birth today. That's a little bit of a surprise, right, when you get to the text and you're like, we've decided we'd preach through the lectionary text, texts, the historic appointed texts for the season of Advent. I'm like, man, this, you know what this text is really about? This is about the virgin birth, not what I thought I was going to talk about. Um, but this is where we were appointed. And, and here's, here's a couple of quick thoughts. This is no fringe belief. Okay. Since the beginning of the Christian faith, this has been core to Christianity. This is one of the oldest, most fundamental Christian beliefs. The Gospels testify to the virgin birth. The earliest Christian creeds testify to the virgin birth, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. In fact, the belief that in the virgin birth has been, and it continues to be, one of the definitive marks of of what is considered to be true Christian theology around the world and throughout time. It is, in other words, a measurement against which you can compare or analyze any kind of system that calls itself Christian. In other words, since the beginning of uh, the church, last 2,000 years, Eastern Orthodox Christians, Roman Catholic Christians, and Protestant Christians, those are the three major streams of Christianity, they all agree on this we all embrace this fundamental doctrine of the uh, virgin birth. We all believe, in other words, as Matthew said, this is how the birth of the Jesus the Messiah came about. And this is how it happened. Another thought. Now, you, of course, you know this story is impossible, right? You know this story is impossible, like scientifically. If you try to reproduce this, if you're trying to look at strictly observable scientific methods, you can't prove this, you can't prove this story. And so, in the modern era, the virgin birth has been, to a significant degree, kind of relegated to legend. And there are even very intelligent, remarkably gifted Christian historians and theologians who have in their writings wondered, uh, does the whole Christian story really rest on this truth, this claim? Would it all fall apart if somehow we could show that Mary and Joseph conceived this baby like any other baby is conceived? In other words, did God have to do it this way? Do we really need the virgin birth? Couldn't God have saved the world in some other way? And if, they, if I was asked that question directly, I would offer two responses. The first would be, of course he could. He's God. He made matter. He made the universe. He made people. He can do whatever he wants the way he wants it. He's God. And the second response I would give is, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. In other words, you might get hung up, friends. We might get hung up on the scientific plausibility of the birth of Jesus through a virgin woman. That is an understandable puzzle given our cultural climate and our educational emphases and those kinds of things. But realize this before you get too impressed by your education. Realize that for 2,000 years, people have embraced this story as true and, furthermore, as meaningful. As meaningful. Why is it meaningful? That's what I've been telling you. Let me reiterate it. Because this is the beginning of the story of God revealing himself through his son. Because this is a critical part of the story of God saving you and me. And because this is a vivid, memorable, soul-level story 
that communicates God is with us. That's why it's meaningful. Um, For a couple years now, I've been using this Benedictine prayer book in the mornings. The language is old and formal and strange, and I love it. Um, I don't mind it at all. And and yesterday, between the two readings, uh, there's a little phrase that it has, uh, and it's like the phrase sort of captures a common theme in the two readings. And so you read it because the readings are long, and you need a reminder of what is it I'm talking about here. So you read this short little phrase, and you read it over and over a couple of times throughout the morning. And this is the phrase that I read yesterday. There is no need to be afraid. In five days, our Lord will come to us. Alleluia. Isn't that awesome? Right in the middle of all this formal language, there's no need to be afraid. In five days, uh, our Lord will come to us. Hallelujah. In other words, let's praise the Lord together. Right? I, friends, I need the simple power of this story. Okay, that's what it comes down to. I need the simple power of the story that God has come to reveal himself to me in order to save me from my brokenness, my sin, my rebellion, and ultimately that God is with me. The truth is God wants to reveal himself to you in order to rescue you from your sin, your brokenness, your chaos, your rebellion. What God wants you to know this morning, friends, is very simple, really, but it's a game changer. He's with you, okay? He's with you. He is Emmanuel, the God who is with us. And so we pray, come, come long expected Jesus, Uh, more than ever in the next few days, come into our awareness, our heart and mind, our equations, our perspectives, our behaviors, come long expected Jesus, I need you to be God with me, amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Amen. Amen.